Welcome to Choice Classic Radio, where we bring to you the greatest old-time radio shows. Like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube, and thank you for donating at choiceclassicradio.com. The makers of Campbell Soups present The Campbell Playhouse, Orson Welles, producer. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. Tonight we take you to Shangri-La in the Valley of the Blue Moon. You may not believe this story, but ladies and gentlemen, remember please that ever since the human race was articulate, men have returned with tales of such a place as Shangri-La. Usually they've been laughed at. Always they've been doubted, but never yet been proved that their stories were untrue. And so tonight we bring you James Hilton's Lost Horizon and as our guest of the evening, Miss Sigrid Gurry. Before our story begins, before we move on into the future, as embodied in the earthly paradise of Shangri-La, Ernest Chappell invited us to hark back for just a moment to an occasion or two, and here he is. An occasion or two, ladies and gentlemen, when dinner and the choice of a main dinner dish were especially important. Perhaps it was a birthday celebration or a wedding anniversary, and you were eating out. Together, you consulted the menu, looked up, and... Well, dear, this is your occasion. What looks good to you? Um, let's have chicken, shall we? Mm, sounds good to me. Oh, here's our waiter now. And then when important company was coming to dinner at your house... But what shall we have for dinner, darling? I say let's have chicken. That's something everybody likes. Let's have chicken. Haven't you said those very words yourself many and many a time when you wanted to enjoy or to serve an especially fine dinner? I'll wager you have, because there's no disputing the fact that just about all of us do have an exceptional liking for chicken in one form or another. And I think it must be this general liking for chicken that accounts for the constantly growing popularity of Campbell's chicken soup. Every golden drop of this chicken soup brims with rich chicken flavor. Steeped in the taste of chicken, too, is the fluffy white rice Campbell's measure into this homey, old-fashioned chicken soup. And you'll enjoy pieces of tender chicken meat in every fragrant plateful. Have it soon, won't you? Perhaps tomorrow. I promise you, just as sure as you like chicken, you like Campbell's chicken soup. And now, Orson Welles in James Hilton's Lost Horizon with Sigrid Gurry. I say, Sanders, did you ever know a chap named Conway? You mean Glory Conway? Oh, yes, of course I do. Remember him very well. Wonderful fellow. He was. Our civilization doesn't breed people like that nowadays. Remember the uprising at Basco? Some of the fall last. Yes, I remember. They sent Conway up there, you know, to take over. That's right. There was a wild yarn going about, wasn't there? But one of the planes that went out never came back. Yes, the plane did disappear. There were four people in it. Conway and three others. I can only tell you the story as he told it to me. I don't ask you to believe it. I wouldn't believe it myself, except for one small fact. There were four of them in that plane. There was Conway. There was Melanson, his assistant, just a youngster, but he'd come to be quite fond of him during the six months they'd worked together at Bath School. And two others he didn't know. Miss Brinklow, a missionary, and an American named Barnard. Conway said he was dog-tired. All he wanted to do was sleep. As a matter of fact, they were hardly off the ground, he said, before he was dozing off. And he doesn't know exactly, but he thinks he must have slept for several hours. Conway! Conway! Conway, look, there's a break, break in the clouds! Conway! Conway, where are we? I don't know, Madam. Hey, what is it? Something wrong? I think we're way off our route, Mr. Barnard. Off our route? We're being kidnapped! Kidnapped? Hey. I've been thinking for some time, Mr. Conway, that something was wrong. Well, I'll be darned. What is he doing it for? Where is he taking us? Yes, there aren't any trials being around here. 
We're far past the frontier country by now. Oh, we'll be in Tibet by morning. If the gas holds out. Why, nobody but a lunatic would fly to this sort of country. Yeah. Nobody but a darn fine airman could. Most of the icing up. That's the land. How the fellow can see the land in pitch blackness, I don't know. Well, at any rate, I'm glad it won't. Conway, we're going to crack up. Well, here we go. Uh, rotten landing. Rotten. Oh. Cracked up his left wing. Well, we're just to stay where we are now. That's certain. Come on, Conway. I'm going forward. Melanson. I'm not scared of this fellow on land, wherever he is. I'm going to attack him right away. Go after him from the outside. The end of the world. Better stop him, Conway, before he does something foolish. Yes. Melanson. Melanson, come back. Melanson. Melanson. I said, Conway. It's queer. I think the pilot's dead. He's all doubled up over his panel. All right, come on. Let's get him out of the cockpit into the open. That's right. Lay him down here. Well, what's happened now? Let's have a look at him. Strike a match, will you, somebody? Here, here. No. No use in this wind. His heart's very faint. Hey, this isn't our pilot. He's Chinese. <laughs> Be quiet, Melanson. Well, I can't help it. We look such fools standing about striking matches over a corpse. He isn't much of a beauty, is he? Look, well, he's coming too. I just My sight. Can you understand him, Conway? Shh. How are you? Shangri-La. Well... What's the matter, Conway? He's dead. Could you understand anything he said? Very little. But we're in Tibet, which is obvious. And I gather there's a place near here, along the valley. Some sort of monastery, it sounds like. We can get food and shelter there. He kept saying we must go there. He said his name. It was Shangri-La. I shall never forget Conway's vivid description of that lonely place. It was like a vast emptiness, he said, with mountains on every side. Mountains rising on top of mountains. There was a range of them gleaming on the far horizon like a row of dog teeth. But it was the wind, I think, that impressed him most. Not an ordinary wind. Not even a strong wind or a cold wind. A sort of frenzy that lived all around us. That's how I spoke of it. And all through the night, he watched. At dawn, the wind dropped. And in the lessening gloom, the valley took shape. A floor of rock and shingles sloping upwards. And then, suddenly in the distance, he saw climbing down the steep incline of the mountain, coming towards him, a party of men. Tibetans, they looked like. There were a dozen or more, carrying with them a hooded chair. In this sat a figure, an elderly Chinese, gray-haired, clean-shaven, robed in an embroidered gown of rich blue silk. My name is Chung. We have with us food and wine, if you will honor me by accepting our slight hospitality. After that, we can start. Our journey is long Somewhat difficult. Uh, if we could uh, borrow a couple of your men for guides and uh, some stores, I think we can get along all right by ourselves. I'm afraid that would be quite impossible. I regret that it will be necessary for you to return with me to the lamasery. The lamasery? Yes. I shall try to arrange for guides for you there. I'm sorry, we must intrude on your hospitality this way. We are always delighted to receive guests from the outside. Well, we, uh, we won't be there long, I promise you that. And we'll pay for everything we, ha we have. We'll pay for our journey, journey and our guide back. We want to return to civilization as soon as possible. My dear sir, are you so very certain that you are away from it? From the plateau to the lamasery, it took them ten hours. It was bitterly cold. At one time, they were forced to rope themselves together. Conway seemed very pleased that here, at least, he was of some use. 
done a lot of mountain climbing in the Swiss Alps and knew all the tricks. And then, very late in the afternoon, without warning, Conway said, they stepped out onto level ground, out of that mist and cold into clear, sunny air. Far below them, under the setting sun, was the Lamasery. A group of colored pavilions cling to the mountainside with the chance delicacy of flower petals impaled upon a crag. That's how he described it. And beyond that, in a dazzling pyramid, shimmering against the deep electric blue of the evening sky, was the most beautiful mountain on earth. It was so radiant, so serenely poised, that for a moment he wondered if it was real at all. There's our valley. There is our lamasery. It is called Shangri-La. Our simple dinner has pleased you, Mr. Barnard. Well, I've been around a lot, Mr. Chang, but I've never tasted food like this. I've never seen anything like this place. Bathtubs from Akron, Ohio, steam heating. Lord, what haven't you got? You see, here at Shanghai La, we are less barbarian than you expected. We have a rather complete library for a monastery. A certain of our art treasures. Oh, that girl up there, Craig. I've never heard 17th century music played so well. She's charming. Who is she? Her name is Lutzen. She has much skill with Western keyboard music. Why, the girl looks hardly more than a child. How old is she? I am afraid I cannot tell you. <laughs> Not giving away secrets about a lady's age, is that it? <laughs> Precisely. Yes, yes, well, that's all very interesting. Uh, but it's uh, time we began to discuss plans of getting away, Mr. Jack. I, I am sorry. I am very, very sorry. Well, surely you, uh, you can do something. You have maps, I suppose. Oh, yes, yes. A great well, many. Well, all right. I, I suppose you must have some communication with the outside world. How far is it to the nearest telegraph line? Well, where do you send... Where do you send to when you want anything civilized? It is quite true, Mr. Mallison, that from time to time we do require certain things from distant parts. And there is such a consignment expected shortly. Perhaps when the porters arrive... When do they arrive? The exact date is, of course, impossible to forecast. All right. All right, Lamar. I'll say no more, then. Not tonight. But in the morning, I warn you that in the morning, I intend leaving. Good night. I'm sorry my friend is upset tonight. I, too, am sorry. You will, none of you, I am sure, regret your sojourn with us in our little valley in the shadow of Karkal. Karkal. Is that the name of that mountain we saw? Yes. It is beautiful, is it not? And very tall. Over 28,000 feet. Caracal. In the valley tongue, Mr. Conway, Caracal means blue moon. Blue moon. Stop, Mr. Conway. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't hear you come in, Lord Sam. You play very well. Oh, no, not really. I, I lead a pretty busy life, and I don't get near a piano very often. Please go on playing. If you don't, I shall have to go away. Oh, but why? 
It is not usual in the beginning that we talk with the guests. But it's not forbidden. No, but but I'm not sure that Jean would approve. There are subjects we do not discuss, Mr. Conway, either with you or amongst ourselves. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Your friend, Mr. Mallinson, is not so polite. He tries to make me talk. Oh, you, you mustn't mind Mallinson. He means all right, but he's rather an excitable young man. I don't think he's very happy here. No, he's not at all happy. It is sometimes very lonely. Oh, well, he's young. That makes a difference. Yes. Yes, it makes a great deal of difference. Conway said that in that place it was difficult to estimate the passage of time. He said it must have been about a fortnight after they got to Jangrila that Jung came to him one day with a message. The message was a summons from the High Lama. Together they went across the empty courtyards, then up a steep spiral staircase, and as they climbed, Conway said he was aware of a strange sensation. A dry, tingling warmth, as if all the windows were tightly closed and some kind of steam heating plant was working at full pressure. Then, finally, they were standing before a door which opened and closed again, and Conway found he was alone. He said he stood there for a moment, hesitant, breathing an atmosphere that was not only sultry but full of dusk so that it was several seconds before he could accustom himself to the gloom. Then, slowly, he became aware of a small, pale, and wrinkled person, motionlessly shadowed, like some fading antique portrait in the warm dusk. He felt dizzy under the gaze of those ancient eyes. You are Mr. Conway. I am. It is a pleasure to see you, Mr. Conway. Please sit down beside me. I am an old man and can do no one any harm. Oh, I feel it a signal honor to be received by you. Thank you, my dear Conway. I shall call you that according to the English fashion. Zhang tells me that you have been asking many questions about our community. It's a fair. I'm certainly interested in it. Then if you can spare me a little time, I shall be pleased to give you a brief account of our foundation. Tell me, my dear Conway, are you familiar with the general outline of Tibetan history? I found in your excellent library some interesting annals of these regions. But curiously enough, nothing of the history of Shangri-La. There is a reason for that, as you will see. And in all the maps of this area... Both ancient and modern, there's no mention of Caracal or the Valley of the Blue Moon. That, too, is for a reason you will soon understand. The ancient history of Shangri-La is the history of a Catholic priest named Father Perot. Before devoting himself to Far Eastern missions... Perrault had studied at Paris, Bologna, and other universities. He was something of a scholar... But he was not an ascetic. He enjoyed the good things of the world and was careful to teach his converts cooking as well as catechism. In the year 1719, Perrault set out from Pekin with three other Capuchin friars. They traveled southwest for many months by Langchao and the Coconor, facing terrible hardships. The three others died on the way, and Father Perrault was not far from death, when, by accident, 
He stumbled into the rocky defile that remains today the only practical approach to the valley of the blue moon. Pharaoh began to preach here in the year 1734 when he was 53 years of age. His was a full life, and he had accomplished much when in the year 1789 news descended to the valley that Perrault was dying at last. He lay in this room, my dear Conway, where he could see from the windows the white blur that was all his failing eyesight gave him of Caracal. But he could see with his mind also. His mind had straightened to a snow-white calm. He was ready, willing, and glad to die. He gathered his friends and servants round him and bade them all farewell. Then he asked to be left alone a while. And it was during such a solitude, with his body sinking and his mind lifted to beatitude, that he had hoped to give up his soul. But it did not happen so. He lay for many weeks without speech or movement. And then, my dear Conway, he began to recover. He was then a hundred and eight. When the last of the old monks died, in 1794, Perrault himself was still living. He was then 113 years of age. You will wish to know how he spent his time during those unprecedented years. You see, Father Perrault's attitude may be summed up by saying that as he had not died at a normal age, he began to feel that there was no discoverable reason why he either should or should not do so at any definite time in the future. Having already proved himself abnormal, it was as easy to believe that the abnormality might continue as to expect it to end at any moment. I think I understand, Father. Can you indeed? And can you understand anything else after this long and curious story of mine? It seems impossible. Yet I can't help thinking of it. It's astonishing and extraordinary and quite incredible. And yet, not absolutely beyond my powers of belief. What is, my son? That you are still alive, Father Perrault. are listening to Orson Welles in the Campbell Playhouse presentation of Lost Horizon with Sigrid Gurry. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is Ernest Chappell, ladies and gentlemen, welcoming you back to the Campbell Playhouse. In a moment, we shall resume our presentation of James Hilton's Lost Horizon. And in that moment, I'd like to take you back across the high plateau of Tibet, back from this strange corner of the world to the familiar surroundings of your own home, in order to remind you that more soup is eaten in December than in any other month of the year. There are a number of good reasons why December is the top soup-eating month, but of them all, I think these two are most important. First, December ushers in winter. And most mothers realize that good hot soup in the winter diet not only nourishes and warms us pleasantly, but served frequently can help fortify us. Second, December is of all months the month of entertaining, of open house when relatives and friends drop in and gather at the table. And wise hostesses have learned that no dish can more quickly or more successfully transform even a simple meal, give it a festive holiday touch, than a well-chosen soup. Will soup be on your table frequently this month? And will you let Campbell's make this soup for you, as millions will? I know that whatever Campbell's soups you may select, you'll be delighted to find the same full-flavored, nourishing soup that you would strive for in your own kitchen. 
And now Orson Welles resumes our Campbell Playhouse presentation of Lost Horizon with Secret Gurry. Another whiskey, Sanders? Hey. They win. Well, that'll do. Ah, it's getting awfully late. Never mind. Please go on. About Conway. Yes, it is quite a story, isn't it? You see, from the time Conway got to that monastery place till the night when he told me about it, nearly a year had passed. Heaven only knows what he'd been through. But the way he told his story, and the way he described it all, it was as though he were living it all over again. Every minute. Every detail of it. I remember the tone of his voice as he spoke of the High Lama. I remember the silence, exactly as he described it. The silence between him and that ancient figure in that airless, half-lit room. It may have lasted but a second, though it seemed an hour, an eternity, that he sat there staring at the ancient face of the High Lama. It was disembodied. It seemed to glow out of that yellow dusk like a fragment of an old parchment. In the course of those next years, a few rare strangers found their way to the valley and were welcomed. A Chinese merchant found his way here in 1822. A Greek trader in 1830 and in 18. 45, a French musician, a pupil of Chopin, later an Englishman, two Russians and a German, and night and day sentries kept constant watch on the entrance to the defile. And more than one party of explorers, glorying in their first distant glimpse of Caracal, encountered messengers bearing a cordial invitation, one that was rarely declined. Just as we were greeted and welcomed? Yes, my dear Conway. Of course, our invitation is subject to one very important and invariable proviso. And that is? You intend to keep us here? That, I take it, is the important and invariable proviso. You have guessed correctly, my son. In other words, we are to stay at Shangri-La forever? I should... Greatly prefer to employ your excellent English idiom and say that we are all here for good. <laughs> for good. Yeah. What puzzles me is, why out of all the rest of the world's inhabitants, we four should have been chosen? In recent years, our number has been shrinking. Even in Shangri-La, we are mortals. And a serious problem was beginning to arise. What you mean... That pilot was sent out deliberately to bring someone back by air? My son, you are still, I should say, a youngish man by the world's standards. Your life, as people say, lies ahead of you. Yes, in the normal course, you might expect only 20 or 30 years of gradually diminishing activity. Youth and old age... Between those two clouds, what small and narrow sunlight illumines a man's lifetime. But you, it may be, are destined to be more fortunate, since by the standards of Shangri-La, your sunlit years have scarcely yet begun. You will have time. Time, that rare and lovely gift that your western countries have lost the more they have pursued it. You make no comment, my dear Conway. I've been deeply impressed, Father Thoreau, by the things you've told me. I still don't entirely comprehend their significance. Here in Shangri-La, my son, we have a dream and a vision. It is a vision that first appeared to me when I lay dying in this room in the year 1789. I looked back then on my long life, as I have already told you, and it seemed to me that all the loveliest things were transient and perishable, and that war, lust, and brutality might someday crush them until there were no more left in the world. 
I saw the nations strengthening, not in wisdom, but in vulgar passions and the will to destroy. And I perceived that when they had filled the land and sea with ruin, they would take to the air. I foresaw a time when men, exultant in the technique of homicide, would rage so hotly over the world that every precious thing would be in danger. Every book and picture and harmony, every treasure garnered through two millenniums, the small, the delicate, the defenseless, all would be lost like the lost books of Livy, or wrecked as the English wrecked the summer palace in Peking. I share your opinion of that. And that, my son, is why I am here, and why you are here. And why we may pray to outlive the doom that gathers around us on every side. You think that when that time comes, that Shangri-La will escape? Perhaps. We may expect no mercy, but we may faintly hope for neglect. Here we shall stay with our books and our music and our meditation. Conserving the frail elegances of a dying age and seeking such wisdom as men will need when their passions are all spent. We have a heritage to cherish and bequeath. Let us take what pleasure we may until that time comes. Yes. And then? Then, my son, when the strong have devoured each other, the Christian ethic may at last be fulfilled. And the meek shall inherit the earth. I declare, I believe there's a storm coming up. Somehow I never expected that here. Oh, I, I don't think it'll touch us here in the valley. Sure hate to be out there in that pass, though. That place is murder. Well, well, we've all got to face it sooner or later. All four of us. First part us be here any day now. I don't imagine we'll have perfect weather all the way to India. No, I don't think we will. That's one of the reasons why I think I'll let this first trip pass. There'll be other porters later. You, you mean, sir, you're not coming with us? That's it. Well, I, I suppose it's uh, your own affair. That nobody can prevent you from stopping here for all your life. It's not what everybody would choose to do, but ideas differ. What do you say, Conway? I agree. Ideas differ. As a matter of fact, there's a very practical reason why I think I'll stay on. I don't know whether you people guessed it or not. It was not Barnard. Not Barnard? Never was. I'm Chalmers Bryant. Chalmers, <gasps> you don't mean that Wall Street fellow? The international swindler? That's me. I had some friends in Woodstock that lost all they had through you. I'm sorry. Well, you certainly played fast and loose with a lot of other people's money. And why? Because those same people all wanted something for nothing and hadn't the brains to get it for themselves. That's nonsense. I'll tell you another thing, too. There's gold in this valley. Tons of it. What's more, I've got permission to prospect it. Maybe I can give them tips on how to increase the output. Maybe even someday I'll have... Uh, a common thief. Facing a life behind prison bars. No wonder he wants to stay here. Well, I'm not facing a life behind prison bars, Mr. Mallinson. And I think I'll stay on, too. What? You, Miss Brinkler? Yes. I've done a lot of thinking the last few weeks, and my mind's made up. It's quite obvious that I have a call. This place is in urgent need of a mission. I'm strongly opposed to this doctrine of moderation. In my opinion, it's nothing but slackness and laxity. It's plain to me now that I have a lot of work to do here. A lot of work. Mr. Conway, you have seen the High Lama? Yes. He told you everything? What do you mean? The story of Father Pro, of the Lama, of me. The High Lama did not mention you, Lotsen. He told me a great deal about the history of Shangri-La and the work he's doing. And you found it interesting? More than that. I was thinking just now as you played how much Shangri-La has come to mean to me. How much these hours here in the music room with you have come to mean. Do they? Others feel like this, too. I'm afraid not. But then, we're all of us different. 
Preach of it, I dare say. Shangri-La holds a special meaning. Except, I think, for Mr. Mallinson. He will never be contented here, Mr. Conway. Never. No, I suppose not. He has no idea, then, of what the Lama has told you. You haven't told him. Naturally not. Can you believe? You believe all that you've been told? Well, I see no reason why the High Lama should lie to me. No? No, of course not. Of course not. Um, have there been many who have tried to escape from Shangri-La? Escape, Mr. Conway. Is that really the word that should be used? After all, the path is open to anyone at any time. Uh, yeah. I can only hope none of your friends would be so rash as to attempt so difficult a journey. Uh, there's Mr. Marathon. He's young, of course. Uh, but others, too. Uh, Lutzen, for instance, was young when she first came to us. Was young? Her carriers lost their way in the mountains. She was betrothed to a prince of Turkestan and was traveling to Kashgar to meet him. The whole party would doubtless have perished but for the customary meeting with our emissaries. When did this happen? 1884. She was 18. 18? 1884? Yes. If you will forgive me a personal question, Mr. Conway, is it possible that you are falling in love with Lord Sen? What makes you ask that? Because if it is so, it would be quite, uh, excusable. Always, of course, in moderation. <laughs> Even love then fits into your scheme of things. The hospitality of Shangri-La is of a most comprehensive kind, Mr. Conway. Yes, I think I quite realize that by now. Uh, tell me, Mr. Jang, how old were you when you first came to Shangri-La? I was quite young, only 22. I am now 104. When did you first begin to grow old in appearance? I was over 70. That is often the case, though I... Think I may still claim to look younger than my years? Oh, decidedly. Thank you. Uh, and suppose you were to leave the valley now. What would happen? Death. If I remained away for more than a very few days. But even if I were fortunate enough not to die, I would immediately acquire the full appearance of my actual age. The atmosphere then is essential? Mr. Conway, in the whole world there is only one valley of the blue moon. You are unhappy, my son. Not for myself, Father. I've never known such happiness as I've enjoyed here. It's as if I'd been searching for a long, long time. At last I'd come to the end of that search. Then it is for the others. You are unhappy. For one of them. The other two are quite content, it seems. Yes, Miss Sprinklow wishes to convert us. <laughs> Mr. Barnard would also like to convert us into a gold mining corporation. But your friend, to whom neither gold nor religion can offer solace. How about him? Yes, he's going to be the problem. I'm afraid he's going to be your problem. Why mine? Oh. Ah, very storms. They are nothing. Karakul sends us storms at this time of the year. But we are quite secure. You said, Father, that Melanson yes. was going to be my problem. Why mine, particularly? Ah, uh, because, my son, I'm going to die. <laughs> yes, Christ. But surely, my friend, we are all mortal, even at Shangri-La. Father. <laughs> it is charming of you to appear so concerned. And I will not pretend that there is not a touch of wistfulness, even at my age, in contemplating death. Fortunately, little is left of me that can die physically. And as for the rest, all our religions display a pleasant unanimity of optimism. There remains to me before I go one final duty concerns you, my son. You do me a great honor. I have in mind to do much more than that. <laughs> 
I am about to place in your hands, my son, the heritage and destiny of Shangri-La. I have waited for you, my son, for quite a long time. I have sat in this room and seen the faces of newcomers. I have looked into their eyes and heard their voices, always in the hope that someday I might find you. My friend, it is not an arduous task that I bequeath, for our order knows only silken bonds. To be gentle and patient, to care for the riches of the mind, to preside in wisdom and secrecy, while the storm rages without. The storm? This storm you talk about? It will be such a one, my son, as the world has not seen before. There will be no safety by arms, no help from authority, no answer in science. It will rage till every flower of culture is trampled and all human things are leveled in a vast chaos. Such was my vision when Napoleon was still a name unknown, and I see it now more clearly with each hour. And you think this will come in my time? I believe that you will live through the storm and after, through the long age of desolation. You may still live, growing older and wiser and more patient. You will conserve the fragrance of our history. And add to it the touch of your own mind. Beyond that, my vision weakens, but I see. At a great distance, a new world stirring in the ruins. In its lost and legendary treasures. And they will all be here, my son. Preserved as by a miracle. Hidden behind the mountains in the valley of the blue moon. The speaking had finished. The voice was silent. Conway stood there, looking at that face before him, full of a remote and drenching beauty. Then the glow faded, and there was nothing left but a mask, dark-shadowed and crumbling like old wood. And Conway told me that it was only after a long time that it came to him as part of a dream that the High Lama was dead. Conway! Conway, I've got the porters. The porters? Yes, they're about five miles down the path. They came yesterday loaded with books and things. You're thinking of going out to them? Oh, naturally. Oh, Mallinson. Suppose you do get beyond the pass and find the porters waiting there. How do you know they'll take you with them? It all needs arrangements, negotiations beforehand. Well, they have been arranged. They have been paid in advance. And they've agreed to take us. Who's been making all these plans? Lertzen. Who? Lertzen. She's with the porters now, down below the path. She's uh, waiting. Waiting? Yes. She's coming with us. I assume you have no objection. Don't send. That's nonsense. It's impossible. It's not impossible. You think you know a great deal more about her than I do, I dare say. But it seems you don't. Oh, just think of it, Conway. A kid of her age shut up here with a lot of old men. Naturally, she'd get away if she had a chance. She said she'd come. She wanted to come. Hang it all, Conway. Don't stare at me like that. Melanson. I've got to tell you the truth. I hope when you've heard it, you'll realize at least why Lotsen can't possibly go back with you. Huh? Well, there isn't anything that would make me believe that. But go ahead. There's something about this valley, Mellon. Something that makes it different from other places. From any other place on earth. There are men living here. You've seen them. Who were young when your grandparents were already old. Oh, and you think that Lotsen Lotsen is no different from the others. Lotsen is not young. Not young? I, I suppose you'll tell me that she you... came here in 1884. 1884. And she was 18 then. That, that makes her... She was 18 then. Conway. Conway, you're raving. 
You're raving! Her beauty, Melanson, like all other beauty in the world, lies at the mercy of those who do not know how to value it. It's a fragile thing that can live only where fragile things are loved. Take it away from this valley, and you will see it fade like an echo. You will see her for what she is. An old woman. Conway, I don't believe you. I never will. I I think you're off your head. I'm sorry if you think that, Melanson. They... They warned me about that in India. I thought they were wrong. What did they warn you of? Well, they, they said that you'd been blown up in the war and that you'd be queer at times ever since. Melanson. Well, that settled it. I'll go now alone. I, I don't know how I managed to climb without you. And those tricks with a rope. Well, it's almost certain death. But I must go. I gave my word. Lord Ten? Yes. Oh, won't you, won't you come with us, Conway? I, I hate imploring you for my own sake. But I'm young, and we've been friends. And Lopesen, too. She's young. Doesn't she count at all? Melanson, there's just one question I'd like to ask. Yes? Are you in love with Lopesen? I... I dare say I am. Oh, Conway, it's that stupid nonsense about her being old. Conway, you can't believe that. You just How can't... can you really know she's young? Because I do know she's young. Because you'll think less of me for it. Because I do know. Oh, I... I'm afraid you'll never properly understand her, Conway. And you do. And she's young. And you're sure of that? Just a girl, Conway. I was terribly sorry for her, and we were both attracted. I don't see there's anything to be ashamed of. She's young. I know. I understand. Valentine. I don't know whether I've been mad and I'm now sane or whether I've been sane for a time and I'm now mad again. Well, Conway. You think you could manage that tricky bit on the pass for the rope if I were with you? You see, I think at the last moment the thing happened to Conway that so often happens to the dreamers of the world. His dream had dissolved like all two lovely things at the first touch of reality. I think he realized, too, that his mind dwelt in a world of its own, its own Shangri-La, and that with their going, Melanson and Lo Tsen, that world was in peril. He saw the corridors of his imagination twist and strain under the impact. The pavilions were toppling and all about was ruined. Good, good heavens, man, you talk as though... You don't mean you really believe this story, do you? I wouldn't believe it, except for one very small fact. And that is? Two weeks ago, I went back to the hospital at Jungyang and looked up the young Chinese doctor who'd had charge of Conway's case. You remembered him perfectly. The Englishman who'd lost his memory. Was it true he'd been brought to the mission hospital by a woman, I asked? Oh, yes, certainly by a woman. A Chinese woman. She said something about a companion... A young Englishman who'd died on the way. Did he remember anything about her? Nothing, he answered, except that she'd been ill of fever herself and had died almost immediately. Then I asked him one final question. But there, so you couldn't guess what it was. About that Chinese woman, I said. Was she young? Yes, and what did he say? He looked at me solemnly for a moment. And then he answered, Oh, no. She was most old. Most old of anyone I had ever seen. The last you heard of Conway was three months ago from Bangkok, eh? Yes. And he was going northwest. How could many places lie northwest of Bangkok? Including... The Valley of the Blue Moon. Do you think you'll ever find it again? My friend. It is not an arduous task that I bequeath. For our order knows only silken bonds. To be gentle and patient care for the riches of the mind, to preside in wisdom and secrecy while
while the storm rages without. Such a storm, my son, as the world has not seen before. There will be no safety by arms, no help from authority, no answer in science. But I see, at a great distance, a new world, stirring in the ruins, seeking its lost and legendary treasures. And they will all be here, my son, preserved. As by a miracle, hidden behind the mountains in the valley of the blue moon. have been listening to Orson Welles in the Campbell Playhouse presentation of Lost Horizon with Sigrid Gurry. Mr. Welles will return to the microphone with his guest of the evening in just a moment. Meanwhile, one quick reminder. You'll be serving soup frequently these December days, won't you? I'm sure you will. And in letting Campbell's make your soup for you, as I hope you will, may I suggest you think often of Campbell's chicken soup? You'll find its full, rich chicken flavor will delight your family and your guests. And they'll enjoy, too, the fluffy rice and tempting pieces of tender chicken meat that help to make this chicken soup of Campbell's so homelike in taste and good nourishment. Have it tomorrow, why don't you? If you will, then I know with your very first spoonful you'll understand why I say, just as sure as you like chicken, you'll like Campbell's chicken soup. And now I see Orson Welles is ready, Mr. Welles. Here by my side, ladies and gentlemen, is a lady whom you've already admired in many continents of the world. In Asia, in Marco Polo, in Africa, in Algiers, and more recently in South America, in the picture Rio. And tonight she was in Tibet playing La Sin. But for whose charms the story of Shangri-La might never have reached the outside world. Beautiful Sigrid Guri. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Orson Welles. And thank you especially for inviting me here to Campbell's Playhouse. I hear your productions very often, and tonight being here in the studio with you, acting in one of them... It's really an exciting experience for me. That's very nice of you, Miss Gorey. Thank you. Good night, Orson Welles. Good night, Miss Gorey. And ladies and gentlemen, next week, next Sunday night, our favorite and foremost guest, Miss Helen Hayes, returns once more to the Campbell Playhouse. Our production, Vanessa, you Walpole's magnificent love story of modern England. And Vanessa is not only the heroine of a great love story, she is also one of Helen Hayes' favorite characters. Indeed, it was Miss Hayes' own choice for her next appearance on the Campbell Playhouse. And so until next Sunday night, until Vanessa, my sponsors, the makers of Campbell Soups, and all of us here in the Campbell Playhouse remain obediently yours. The makers of Campbell Soups join Orson Welles in inviting you to be with us in the Campbell Playhouse again next Sunday evening when we bring you our exclusive Playhouse star, Miss Helen Hayes, and the delightful love story, Vanessa. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed tonight's Playhouse presentation, won't you tell your grocer so tomorrow when you order Campbell's chicken soup? This is Ernest Chappell saying thank you and good night. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.